The Evolve Pod is brought to you by TriSwimCoaching.com. Hello and welcome back to the Evolve Pod, everybody. This is episode 26. Can't believe how quickly we're flying through these episodes, getting some really good feedback on the podcast. So thank you, everybody, for listening. If you found the podcast useful and helpful, please don't hesitate to share it amongst your friends, family and colleagues. I'm also promoting a new deal I'm doing this week. So if anybody's listening and you feel like I can offer you some help, both for you personally or for your business, I'm offering 10 listeners one hour free consultation to see whether I can help you and your business. So if you want to get in touch, please don't hesitate to send me a message on the Evolve pod. And I look forward to hearing from you and helping out with you soon. So. Today's episode is a topic that I'm really interested in because it has directly impacted my lifestyle. And I'm sure when we get into it, there's going to be themes and topics that we can all resonate with. So today's topic is sleep. Okay. I've got Nick Littlehales, who is a world leader on sleep coaching and author of the game changing book, Sleep. So Nick founded his game changer R90 technique, which has been tried and tested over 22 years in the elite sports arena with athletes and teams, as well as high achievers and business owners all over the world. So Nick, thank you very much for joining us. I know you're over in Austria at the moment, so you've got a bit of a break, but how are you doing? I'm, I'm very well. It's uh, great to be with you today and everybody who's listening. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. So I mean, personally, I think sleep is a huge topic that we all need to kind of invest a little bit more time into both in terms of research and probably actually being asleep also I've always considered myself quite a light sleeper disturbed sleep etc my wife on the other hand she's a very good sleeper she seems to need a little bit more than me but she sleeps very deeply I think we're all very different in how we sleep and I'd like to kind of get into as much sort of content as we can today but first of all how did you get into the world of sleep? What kind of triggered you to kind of find out a little bit more about it and to start really helping people with, with understanding the, the benefits of better sleep? Um, it's, it's, it's a long story. I've been talking about it a lot over the last few years since that book came out, as you mentioned. But um, I think basically, you know, like many um, teenagers, you know, I, I just love sport. That was my first priority rather than, doing exams and studying, uh, I sort of got away with it a little bit. But I I um, had a little spell as an assistant professional golfer, late 70s, early 80s, different world back then for not only everything else but sports. I had a, I sort of decided I was going to get married. Um, and so I took on a mortgage and had to get a proper job. And um it happened to be within what you class the sleeping industry, which was for a, a big firm called Slumberland, who made comfort products. Um, and I was just their area representative. Absolutely hated it, but it paid the mortgage, you know. Um, while I was doing that, it's sort of, I think, from the sort of coaching and being an independent person as a professional golfer, which you have to be and working with lots of different characters at the golf club and, uh, and coaching people, you know, three times my age who are CEOs and stuff like that. Um, it's sort of, I suppose you learn some skill sets. And the one thing that I started to do straight away was to examine the job, the role, 
how I was being asked to do it. And basically, in a sort of bit of a maverick way, I decided I could do it better or differently. Um, that created some success for me. And sort of a few years later, I'm the international sales and marketing director. Um, it was a big company, traveled around the world. We had lots of licensees uh, around the world. So sort of, I started to get into the world of sleep in more depth. I worked with a number of professors of sleep and the clinical side. Uh, we did a lot of research and, and basically I was just stuck in the world of sleep. Um, there was a point in time there was no sleep council in the UK. So there was no governing body. There was no sort of anybody who reflects sleeping for the population or gathers research or anything. So with a couple of partners within the industry, we set up the first UK Sleep Council, which I was the chairman of for a while. And there was lots of innovative things that we did, that I did, that are still available today, um, changing the mindset about sleep and products and things like that. But the thing that always bugged me, Ali, was that you had quite a bit of research. We knew how important sleep was. We know how we're affected if we don't sleep well. We do have people like your wife who seems to be able to sleep really well, but they can't tell us how they do it. So there was no definitive approach. It was always taken for granted. It's not a performance criteria. It's a health pillar that you just stick on the end of the others. And um, I suppose a little bit of a midlife crisis in my early 40s, um, I just decided I was going to leave the industry and uh, go off and do something completely different. As a director, I had a 12-month contract. So I was twiddling my thumbs, uh, you know, getting new people into the business to replace me. And a little thing cropped up because my UK office was older Manchester in the Northwest. And... Um, the local football team, Oldham Athletic, knocked on the door. You know, we were a big employer in the area and said, would you sponsor the shirts? And most of the workforce were Oldham Athletic, you know, fans or season ticket holders. So I, I just said, why not? And so Slumberland appeared on the front of a football shirt. And from that moment on, I got invited to a few events because I was the guy writing out the cheque. And to sort of try and bring that story a little bit shorter, in that particular area was a breeding ground for Manchester United players in the late 90s. And I just bumped into Alex Ferguson. We started to have a conversation because there we were, having a glass of wine or something, a cup of coffee. And, and basically, you know, because of the things I learned, my own particular take on this subject, the conversation just developed a little bit. He took that back to the club. The, the physio at the time was a guy called Dave Fever. Dave became quite interested when I started talking, do you do anything about sleep? And it was this little area where they spend so much time with the individual, but they have no influence over their homes or sleep or anything like that. So there was, a, there was one player who was always you know, being wrapped in cotton wool, which is a guy called Gary Pallister, lower back issues. Uh, and because my main competence was around sort of products and mattresses and things like that, um, he asked me to go and have a look at his environment. And basically what happened, we changed one or two things. 
Um, his wife started sleeping better, he started sleeping better. And Dave came up with the word that while he was with the player, he was rehabilitating him. But when the player left him, he was debilitating. So we didn't solve it, but we made it better. That triggered a number of little things. The main thing around it at the time was that I could talk. They're all sleepers like the rest of us. But whilst it was inside a sporting organisation, just happened to be Manchester United because it was down the road from my office. I think if it was any other club, the conversation would have never developed. I think it was the open-mindedness of Alex Ferguson and the physio. So I was able to suggest things to them that they would take on board from a performance criteria where the rest of the population and my industry wouldn't be bothered. So the unusual thing was, is most of the players at Manchester United were, you know, British born and bred. The class of 92, the treble winning team that, that had a massive shift. They'd gone through some really turbulent times. Uh, and that was a time when things were turning for them. And those players also played for the England squad. And they started to talk to the England squad staff. One of those was Gary Lewin, who was a shared physio between the England squad and Arsenal. He'd just become aware of a new manager coming into the club called Arsene Wenger, who was considered to be completely sort of crazy in some respects. Had a completely different take on coaching and managing. And so those players influenced Gary. They said, we've got this guy who talks to us about sleep and he's created a nap room at Manchester United because we started double up season training, training in the morning, training in the afternoon. So we set up a nap room. So we go into this room and, and like sleep between training sessions because we've never done that before. But if Alex says we should do it, we do it. Um, so he asked me to come into the Arsenal Football Club that was the first time I sort of was asked to be a sleep coach talking to a first team squad that was completely multicultural. You know, anyone from Thierry Henry, Canoe, Fabregas, completely different thing. So it was at that moment I suddenly found myself in Arsenal Football Club with Arsenal Wenger, completely different environment to anywhere else in football, <laughs> talking to a bunch of players about sleep. And it was at that point where I woke up one morning and the press had, had got hold of that information. So they literally labelled it that top clubs like Manchester United, the England squad and Arsenal have got a sleep coach. And all they did was put those two words together. You know, he's obviously talking to about sleep, but we know there's coaches in football. So at that particular point, I just realised that I am an actual sleep coach. So I better... I sort of better work out what that means and how to do it. And the journey just developed into 2004 in the Euro Championships in Portugal with the England squad, on into places like Chelsea and other teams. Then into, I got asked to get involved with British Cycling in 2008-9, which was basically a five-year strategy to take cycling in the UK from zero to hero and put a British rider on the Tour de France podium. It was all about the aggregation of marginal gains. So they couldn't ignore sleep. The clinical side of sleep was too intrusive and it, it wasn't really a practical approach about performance. It was more about disorders and the problems. So they got me involved. And that's principally where everything that I'd done from 
nap rooms at Manchester United to to products with Euro Euro Championships with changing bedrooms, looking at environments, being able to look at chronotypes and things like that. We brought it all together. It got the title, I gave it the title of the R90 technique because it had to have a sort of umbrella because basically I was just doing it as I thought I would do it. So that created the technique. They had enormous success, British Cycling, uh, on the track, on the road, Tour de France's. And I think that ran into 2012, the London 2012 Olympics, where they clearly showed that they can go to levels that most other teams can't. Um, everybody was a bit intrigued as it must be drug orientated because cycling has that reputation. But at the end of the day, the only thing that they'd never investigated before, apart from the equipment, the clothing, and everything, was actually the subject of recovery sleep. And that's really when it started to, to get some, a, a journey started to begin. And I think over the last, you know, five or six years, I think, uh, never mind pandemic periods, but I think there's this little element that we can always, we challenge ourselves so much. We push ourselves so much. We've got everything at our fingertips. We love, you know, back when I was playing golf, there wasn't a thing called a marathon or a triathlon or an Ironman or a whatever, you know? So a lot of those things put us under pressure. And I think we've just reached that particular point where without a definitive approach, it's almost like get your eight hours at night or you're going to die, you know, you're going to fail, is that with all the different occupations we have, with all the sort of behavior change, is now it's under pressure. And that's the little journey. And it sort of starts off with talking about sleep. It then moves into talking about recovery. It then moves into human recovery performance. And it's all about redefining your approach, protecting yourself uh, from these issues and revealing your personal best more often than when you want to. And where I sit today is that we're making it the first health pillar. Once you get the mindset of making it your first health pillar, amazingly, the other health pillars benefit. So you kind of get this thing of how you can shift somebody's mindset and performance factor. Because if you get your recovery right, then what happens is your training and your nutrition and everything else and your social life and relationships with others all really benefit. So it's like sleep could be your success factor from coming out of the shadow of who you are today. You think you're amazing, you think you're very successful, but there's another version of you just around the corner. And I think that could be a 1% factor or it could be quite a big shift for some to realize that they've been missing out and it's because of that health pillar. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, there's, there's so much in there. I mean, my mind's kind of buzzing with, with you know, little things that we can all take from that i think um i think you said it was it's amazing how sleep has this direct impact on everything and it should be our number one pillar i think i, I totally agree i don't necessarily think it's amazing i just think you know when you when you have a good night's sleep you know i think we can all relate to the fact when you get a good night's sleep a proper decent night's sleep or a proper decent run of recovery everything's easier 
everything's better everything's more functional you're able to think clear more clearly etc and i think that, that like you say it does 100 tie into your nutrition your recovery your performance both your mental performance and your physical performance i think i think that's that's so important for for everybody whether whether you're an elite sports person or not the interesting thing for me is you know having worked with sort of elite teams and and, and businesses as well you know you, you reference man united chelsea arsenal you know two three of the top three teams in in the uk british cycling you know went through that real golden phase where they just excelled and were yards ahead of everybody else at that time obviously working on sleep and getting good sleep behaviors and rest and recovery behaviors into play how tangible were those results you know down to sleep is there a, is there a way of kind of you know obviously they're all interlinked because they all started to perform better when yourself was getting involved to help and these days how tangible are those results now when when we when we can you know because we all feel a bit better after a bit of rest and recovery but is there any sort of tangible results that you can pick up us pick us pick on for us it's sort of you know, there is, there is lots of tracking devices around in all sorts of shape and sort for performance. Uh, back then, they, they were not really, you know, associating with tracking sleep. But, you know, I'd come across sleep trackers many years ago, uh, straight from the frontal lobe of your brain, for the brainwave patterns. But that product came into the marketplace and went away. Um, so when we looked in that area, it was sort of like, should we track this? The thing was, is if you're starting something at a sort of point of zero, is that we were looking at their environments, they're sleeping in that home, uh, whether they've got kids, whether they've got wives, which which direction is the bedroom facing for sunrise and sunset, the temperature, their own personal profile, because everybody's got a little tweak, haven't they? We were then looking at the hotels they were staying in during things like Tour de France for three weeks on a major tour. Then we started looking at, well, hang on a minute, that room is not an elite athlete's room. That, there was a hen party in there last night. Do you know what I mean? And so, you know, hang on a minute, you know, we need to teach the riders how to wash their hands, which seems a bit strange uh, in the current climate, you know, for cleanliness. We looked at the room because there could be viruses in there. So somebody could actually pick up a virus and it crops up two weeks later into the tour, you know, which could be really damaging. So we started just becoming, you know, when you look at marginal gains, it means everything. And it can become a little bit OCD because you mean everything could make a subtle difference. So to answer your question, what happened was the staff noticed quite clearly that the riders instead of sort of like wasting time when they come off the first section of the grand tour because that's where we really started with british cycling because they were running team sky was that you know the massage the team thing and everything else but they, they were quite happy to go up to the bedroom because there was things that they knew that we'd set up for them they knew that they had little techniques in their own way to recover really effectively. We took the worry away from the recovery process. And even to the point where inside a peloton, anybody who knows about that, inside a peloton, there are certain riders who are actually having a sort of nap, uh, a controlled recovery period, 
because they're being dragged along by the rest of the peloton, being not buffeted by the wind. So they don't have to put so much energy into it because the guys at the front are being bashed. So it was kind of like, well, that is a recovery period, isn't it? Okay, then. Brilliant. So when we actually looked at it, you know, Dave Brailsford's Dave Brailsford at the time and the rest of the high-performance team, we just said, we don't need to track this. We don't need to try and quantify it in some sort of way that we've increased our sleep performance or our deep sleep or anything else, because there are still lots of variables. Right? So let's not make it intrusive thing. Let's just go, if we do these things, they're all going to point in the right direction. It means you've got the best opportunity to optimize recovery. And that's the best thing that we can do because there's so many variables around it. And of course, being successful is, is the one thing that sort of qualifies any piece of data, doesn't it? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think it still remains today that it's sort of, we, we sort of question the thing that, are we going to wake up one morning and look at some sleep data and it indicates that you haven't slept as well as you could? Is that going to mean you're not going to go out to train or go to the gym or take the kids to school or, or do that next stage on a grand tour? It's never going to be like that. So why would we want to check something that basically might put worry into somebody's head when at this moment in time, there's nothing there? So we just felt the, the most tangible thing to do was to not look at it, just, do you feel great? Yeah. Are you, yeah, not having that anymore. Brilliant. That's how we measured it, is about everybody felt so much more in control around that whole subject that it just created other dynamics in other areas, you know? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I know you think of sleep and you think of a calm environment, a nice environment, a peaceful environment. And I had a conversation with a coach on a, on a coaching course a few years ago about his sleep. And he was trying to track his sleep in order to measure his sleep versus performance. And he said he wasn't sleeping very well, sleeping with various gadgets around his bedroom, et cetera. And I tried to explain to him that maybe take the pressure off and, you know, have a couple of weeks of without trying to track your data and just focus on sleeping rather than the, the data that's going to come from the sleeping and I think yeah he, he certainly found that trying to quantify his sleep was actually quite stressful you know like what well, I should really go there's already a medical term Ali right uh, it's called orthosomnia and that is the increased stress and anxiety that's created by looking at data that principally guessing right yeah. guessing right it's not coming from the frontal lobe and the brainwave patterns. It's using accelerometer or heart rate or pulse or, you know, it's using those things to sort of go, you might be in that area. You're looking at that data. You're going to take no notice of it, right? Because your day's already mapped out, you know? So it's kind of, it almost creates, well, how? The key thing to this is if you're tracking data when you're mentally and physically active, like eating, Cooking, eating, selecting foods, eating it, your nutrition, your diet, exercise. You're choosing what to do, you're doing it, and you can measure it while you're doing it, right? And you can track these things in a very tangible way, loads of experience and years to back it all up, with lots of professionals been doing for it. When you go into sleep, your brain takes over. Your brain is now in control, right? So you're looking at data, which is what's happened 
when you presented yourself to sleep and your brain took over. Now, what you should be tracking is what's your recovery data from the point of wake to the next point of going into sleep. You've got to help your brain come to that particular point so when it takes over, it'll give you the best recovery. If you're doing things in any rolling 24 hours that are sort of putting the brain, which constantly adapts, constantly adapting, if it's doing that all the time, when you go into sleep, it just goes, right, you can have this and that's all you're going to get because I can't reveal these other things because I'm completely desynchronized with a particular process that very few people know too much about, might hear it talked about a lot, which is the circadian rhythms of our rolling planet. Yeah, that's interesting. Is that, does that kind of then play into the theory of, you know, kind of like the clean sleep, the clean, you know, when you get to the end of the day, almost trying to offset everything that's gone through that day to clear the brain to allow you then to get that full sleep and recovery? I think it's what I, you know, one of those things that always fascinated me was that, you know, all of us focus on pre-sleep. Mm-hmm. So we get to a certain point, we know there's only so many hours left before we've got to get up and start again. We've got this, I need my eight hours scenario in my head, but we don't even know what that means or where it's come from, yeah? But I heard the number somewhere. And um, so what you do is you still, you know, think about having a hot bath, candles, you think of downloading, you think of all sorts of things or a, a warm drink or a supplement or something as the years have gone on. And it's sort of go. it's too late. It's too late. What you should do is focus on the first 60, 90 minutes of your day, right? So okay. whatever point you wake up, forget about what's happened because it's gone, right? You either slept well or you didn't. Forget it. What you need is a very clear post, you know, sleep to fully human functionality wake. And you need to do certain things that will trigger that process to get you to that position quickly, to then be able to tackle the rest of your day. As you pointed out at the start of this, you want to be as alert as possible, awareness, motivation, mood, relationships with others. You don't what you always want to do, you know, do the right things and not overdo things and not make little excuses about why I can't meet you at 20 past six to go to the gym, Ali, because I've got some meeting on, when actually I'm just feeling a bit too tired to come. So it's kind of, that's where you focus, right? And pre-sleep is nothing more than warm to cool, light to dark, bowel and bladder. That's it, right? As far as your start to the day, it's, it's the same in reverse. It's daylight that triggers the hormone serotonin, that tells the brain to unsuppress everything. It's bladder, it's bowel, it's fueling up, it's hydrating the brain, little mental challenges. You know, little bit of exercise, anything that you can get into that first period of your day then sets you up for the rest of the day. And it's not the end of that story, but that's that's really where you should focus. I think that's really interesting because I'm guilty of it, as I'm sure many of the listeners are sitting here, sitting there listening now of, you know, it coming coming towards bedtime. What's my kind of, OK, how many hours have I got until I have to get up kind of thing? And I think it's really interesting to flip that and think about the morning to set yourself up. For the day i think that's a, something i'm definitely going to take forward from there i think there's there's a little thing that you know over the years of experience profiling and you know this as well so 
I thought, that's interesting because, you know, I've been brought up with dogs, right? Uh, and my family's got dogs. So what happens is the dog wakes you up or is ready, needs to go outside to bowel and bladder, needs to be fed, needs to be hydrated, and needs a bit of time and taken on a walk. So when you think about that coaching tool of giving somebody a puppy, yeah, suddenly the space gets created because of something else. And as you know, as coaches, you can't tell somebody to go and do something like that. They go on a little journey and end up there. So it was fascinating when you profile that certain athletes, they go, well, I get up, I feed the dog, take them outside, we go for a walk, 30 minutes walking in the daylight, getting the serotonin. So, and we create some space. The ones who don't have little things like that, sort of like just jump out of bed and rush off to it, sort of approach. And when you've got chronotypes in there, which a lot of people would know as AMs or PMs or owls and lot, when you slide that one in as well, you start thinking, wow, post sleep, that first period is by far the biggest period of your recovery 24 hour process, by far. Okay. So that leads me to think of uh, people who are on shift patterns or work night shifts, because you mentioned the circadian rhythms. How, what's your advice to somebody there who is, you know, essentially, you know, hands tied into a, into a job where they're working evenings, later into the evenings, into the early mornings, or even the whole night? How can they use the circadian rhythm to kind of benefit themselves to optimize their recovery as best as possible? Um, that, that's, <clears throat> there's a big chunk to that, but I'll try yeah. and you know, block it up a little bit. Yeah, the, of course. The thing is, um, you know, as human beings, we're the only thing on this planet that can, can change things, right? Everything else is completely synchronized with the sun rolling around the planet, right? It, it's creating all of that stuff. So everything is seasonal, da da da, sunrise, midday, sunset, yeah, yeah, right? Humans create things. They created things like daylight saving time, right? Which we should get rid of because it, it was not about human performance and it really mocks about with our relationship with light and we have seasonal affective disorder. We created the electric light bulb. Thought, yeah, great. Before the electric light bulb, we never tried to sleep monophasically because we were more synchronized with sunrise, midday, sunset, and light shift. So we only started trying to sleep monophasically and grab all of our recovery in one period when we invented light. We then did things like technology. Then we've done 24-7, you know? And as you wander around that process, you just go, right, okay. Then you've got... You know, it was pretty much three o'clock kickoff on a Saturday back in the late 90s, right? Now look at it in all sorts of sports and in all sorts of areas. So the multi-shift patterns, the different occupations, the 24-7 really started to open this up into you just can't take on board, get your eight hours, sleep in a bedroom 16 to 18 degrees and don't eat too late, which was principally the principles of how you should approach sleep so people just ignore it so what you do is first of all you stop thinking about sleeping on monday tuesday wednesday thursday or friday 
The sun is rolling around the planet. It has no relationship with those days and no relationship with you. It is bringing blue light from the daylight, which is your free energy stuff, which is amazing. Right? That triggers the serotonin in your brain. That unsuppresses everything. And your relationship with light right the way through to sunset is key about that blue light. Then you move into a different phase, which is called melatonin time. And that's diminished light, yellow light, red light, candle light, things like that, not blue light. So first of all, you start thinking 24 hours. Secondly, you start thinking four phases of the day. Right? Sunrise, midnight, sunset, midnight. Right? The second thing you do is that you realize that it's two o'clock in the morning. It's 2 a.m., 3 a.m. That's not night. It just happens to be darker because the sun's not illuminating your postcode, right? So suddenly this dark bit at night from 10 o'clock, you know, onwards, that doesn't significantly, that doesn't say this is sleep time. It just happens to be part of that phase. So if you think we've always slept multiphasically, not just one blocks, that's why you can apply that to multi-schedules, you know, three days doing this or three nights doing that. Nurses, pilots, you name it, Amazon workers, anybody, parents have to do it. And you just go, well, that's more natural. So what you do is you just add some, it's all about rhythm, pattern, and harmony. And the R90 technique was very simple. In a clinic, you'd be wired up, and they would look at your going through the various stages in a 90-minute cycle. And while the so your first 90-minute cycle would be about developing light sleep stages and things like that, right? And bits of REM and that. The second 90-minute cycle, they benchmark it again because you're going into the next period. Then the third one, the fourth one, and the fifth one. Five 90-minute cycles is 7.5 hours. There's your eight. So you can then see that when you're going into a sleep state and your brain takes over. It's now going through these periods, right? You're still asleep, but it's rolling. And you also get to know that the deeper sleep stages, which is only about 20%, whether you slept for 20 hours or, or half an hour, it's only about 20%. So once you jump out of your formative growth years, yeah, where the brain is in control of that, and you move into this sort of monophasic adult area, it's very easy to miss out on it, right? Particularly if you're female. Because for various reasons, which I'll, you know, if you want to go into it, you go. But, so, consistent wait time. Why? The sun rises, right? It rises. It does it every day, right? It shifts a bit through the seasons. Remember daylight saving time. So it's not changed. It's just you change your clocks, right? So, you get this, what's my most consistent wait time? There's a, there's a chronotype wait time. Yeah. So if you're a if you're a lark like me, basically my occupational wait time, my consistent wait time, and my chronotype wait time are the same. I'm lucky. But if you're a nighttime chronotype, you probably would like to wait maybe two cycles after your most consistent wait time that's driven by your occupation or whatever it might be. So once you get that, chop your day up into 90-minute cycles. You'll get 16 times through the four phases of the day. You've now got your post-sleep period, your pre-sleep period. 
You've got various timings when you can go to sleep, like five cycles or four cycles or three cycles. So you can manage shifts and schedules in sport. And then because you know you can sleep biphasically, triphasically or multiphasically. So I'll use a multiphasic approach for a single-handed round-the-world sailor who's going to be at sea for three months on his own and can only leave the deck you know, every four or five hours if the things are absolutely right and gets 26 minutes every four or five hours. Right? So you know that there is a natural recovery period midday. Siesta. We haven't made this up. This is being synchronized. There's another one late afternoon, right? Late afternoon before that final bit of going into the, the diminished light period, phase three. So now you've got a little thing in front of you subconsciously. Consistent wake time, brain says, thank you very much. So you've got these little things. So all that happens is, is if you are having to be active in phase three and phase four, right? Because phase one is sunrise to midday. If you're having to be active and work and everything else, you now can see how you can map out your recovery program, more aligned, synchronized with the natural rhythm of the day, but it's just the opposite way around. So you would sleep between sort of midday and late afternoon, right? Because that's when those periods are ready for you in your brain. You take a nap or a kip or a break at maybe two or three o'clock in the morning. Right? Because between 10 p.m. and 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, that's when the deep sleep will be revealed if you're set up right. So that's why anybody who's got a tracker, you can't see deep sleep cropping up after 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning on whatever app tracker you've got. Because you're actually in light sleep, getting ready to be woken up by the light. That's, you know, once you've got that into your defined approach, and you've got these little timings. What do you do every 90 minutes? What do you do here? Change it around. Basically, that process just determines what happens every day, rolling 24-7. So whether you're going into a major event, you know, whether you're having to do these multi-shifts, is it gives you something, the way to optimize your recovery, that has logic to whether you're active during the day or not active during the day. Well, wow, there's a lot to take in there, but it's um it's all about the routine, isn't it? Yeah. Essentially, once you know the routine, you know the systems, then you can start to really plan your day, whether you're on shift work, whether you're on normal nine to five, to really make it yeah. much more effective for you. Yeah. But I want to move a conversation on a little bit to, to more towards the sort of immune system and the benefits of positive sleep behaviors and recovery behaviors on there. We all know it benefits us to sleep a bit better and to potentially sleep a bit more or even sleep a little bit less. But how does our immune system actually boost itself while we're asleep? What, what's, what's the kind of changes that take place when you, when you have a period or when you have a, a, a time where you, your sleep behaviours have been much more improved? Well, I'm no, I'm no sort of medic, Ali, so you know, I won't even try to answer the question with any sort of clinical references and everything like that. But, you know, always spent quite a lot of time around doctors, around medics and things like that. And I think what... What started to become very apparent is that the more we, you know, you had that sort of shift from a polyphasic sleep approach to a monophasic sleep. Then we shift through the generations. And then we start, you know, this light, then that, then that, then that. So basically, the, the thought process was always about, you should be more synchronized with this process because everything you do creates 
body functionality, right? So everything you eat, everything you drink, everything you exercise, everything you think, whatever you're looking at, the brain is constantly adapting to that situation. So it should be that, you know, if it's three o'clock in the afternoon, right, it should be three o'clock in the afternoon in your body clock, in your hypothalamus, in your brain. That one's telling every cell in your body that's got a little clock in it that it should be three o'clock, right? So if you kind of synchronize with that rhythm, what happens is your brain uh, and everything that you eat, drink, think about, it gets processed in a, in a sort of much better way. So why do we have a lot of mental health and well-being problems? Why do we have a lot of other aspects, burnout and, and stuff like that, all that addictive behavior to supplements and, and all sorts of things trying to deal with it? Is what happens is you, you might, we should be the healthiest, most knowledge population that's ever been on this planet. And yet that isn't the case yeah, in that sense. So I think the bit is, is that the more you can be synchronized with that process, the more benefits you're going to get in every aspect of your own functionality, which the immune system is one key factor to it. So it kind of, it gives the brain the more opportunity, more sustainable consistent levels of opportunity to get into those very rejuvenative uh, repairing areas where you are at your most vulnerable self, right? Deep sleep, REM sleep, non-REM sleep is where I can get into your bedroom and play with your hair, Ali, and you wouldn't know I was there, right? Anybody who's got kids, you know when your kids are in deep sleep, they ain't moving, right? So in light sleep, I won't even get through your front door, right? So light sleep creates a level of recovery. So most people are unrefreshed, but I can still get on with my day, you know? But the deep sleep stuff, for your brain to take you into that area and make you the most vulnerable human being on the planet, wherever you are, locked up in your bedroom, whatever it might be, is it's got to be really happy. So... If you miss out on that deep sleep on a, on a consistent basis, that's why the research and technology allows, you know, the universities and everybody to look into this area even more specifically. That yes, sleep's about recovering, and yes, it's always been really important to us. But we're suddenly realizing that it, it's we've ignored it too long, and there's so much that we can benefit from and battling you know, the changing world, whether it's viruses or this or anything else, we've become very much weaker and more susceptible uh, because these things are not being uh, developed at the right levels. Do you find, I mean, we might be going a bit off topic here and I might open up a can of worms, but do you find, you know, more and more with more advances in technology, more gadgets, gizmos, things that hold our attention, etc. do you find, do you, do you think that maybe we're a little bit too essentially wired these days to, to that actually will have a massive impact on how we're able to sleep? Well, but, you know, I get asked things like that all the time and you don't want to sort of come across as being anti-technology. It's amazing, you know, the shift between the late 90s to here is just unrecognisable, you know, um, and we've got more to come. So some of it is just amazing and so exciting. Uh, some of it is scary, and 
I think we, you know, just like other things that we've done as human beings, sometimes we can we can just technology allows us to just fly into something so quick. There's no sort of, you know, organic growth period yeah, to sort yeah. of get used to it. It's like bang, now we're doing this. So I think that's always going to be questionable, that we're in a bit of a social experiment that none of us really can know what the outcome of anything is. But in principle, I think it's going back to this thing, you know, Ali, you and I, we have brains, we have bodily functions, we should be synchronized to our planet and the sun rolling around it, hormones like serotonin and melatonin, blue light, the energy wave, diminish light. You know, that's never going to change. So when you sort of look at what you're doing, it's not about wasting time recovery, but you, you have to look at it as this, there's mental and physical activities you should also have mental and physical recovery activities. This is not doing nothing. This is not being asleep. This is about having that mindset about what you're doing, why and how, just to be a little bit better. And sometimes you do have to look backwards to see the way forward. And I think in this particular one, so many people that I've known over many years who were massive advocates of data collection, just couldn't get enough of it. It was amazing, right? Many of those today are far more selective about the data they collect, about being too intrusive, about creating things that create other things. So a lot of those real pioneers of data collection actually are now looking at it far more specifically. I think the other thing is, is when you stop, you know, when I was wandering around, as an international sales and marketing director, there was a lot of recovery moments, not planful, but they just happened. So a lot of people watching, waiting for planes and cabs and buses, right? A lot of looking at nature, you know, because there's nothing else to do. A lot of moments when you'd be on a plane, making notes on paper, right? strategizing to change the world. And by the time you got to the end of the flight, you went, now nah, I'm not going to do that, right? But when you look where we are today, is what we're doing, we're stripping away, continually stripping away all of these little moments that added up to allow us to think eight hours at night in a one-block, take-it-for-granted, non-performance criteria. We had, we've been taking them away, and we've took so many away now, is that that's why it's really difficult for your brain to actually optimize your recovery because it's under big pressure from the moment you wake, before you even switch the alarm off on the phone, before you even got to the toilet to have a wee, you're checking notifications, which will start to determine your thought process for the rest of the day, depending on what it is. So it, it, it is very much that what we call is controlled recovery periods because I hate the word nap because nap is a, a, a poor thing for a bad approach, right? The brain just takes over, whether you're behind the wheel of a car on a motorway, which is nuts, or whether you just plonk out on the sofa or what it might be. So we wanted controlled recovery periods. And that means we want you to just stop and just, you know, I'm sat here at my desk. There's a window there in front of me, you know, and every 60, 90 minutes, I just want to stare out the window for two minutes just two minutes, or go by a window for two minutes. You know, whatever it might be, half, the, you know, if you've got a hydration bottle on your desk, whatever it is, 
just half fill it. So you, you're always sort of having to leave what you're doing for a couple of minutes to refill it. Right? So when you look at all the things around you, to keep it short, if I can, when you look at all the things you've got around you and how many of those things just create no space for you and your brain just to have a couple of minutes. Yeah. It's when you start to go, hang on a minute, you know, if I sleep in cycles, I can determine what works for me best, whether it's five cycles or four cycles, you know. I can look at my post routine, I can look at little CRPs every 90 minutes, just a couple of minutes, just all subconscious stuff. Nobody needs to know about it. Um, the subject about light is amazing. So that's something we should touch on today. But and it's just like, well, I'll have a little 30 minute cycle late afternoon, just for me. Not even try to sleep. My little vacant moment. And me and my brain just, sometimes we will sleep, sometimes we won't. But I do it every day. It takes the pressure off phase three. So I don't rush around like a nutcase, trying to get everything done before I've got to get to there, before I've got to get to sleep again and all that. So take the pressure off the 24 hours and get a little bit more synchronized with it. And so like, whoa, cool. I like all this approach. You know, I like... I like how it's working for me. And yeah, I think... it, it's kind of verging on, you know, getting into mindfulness, you know, and yeah. taking taking the time to, to switch off, to almost switch on yeah. and actually engage with other things around you that are just as stimulating as some of the things that you might actually feel like are really stimulating. I think well, that's really interesting. It's amazing when you wander around certain training grounds or even just your local gym or whatever, and you yeah. see sat there in the changing room, towel over their head, right? just taking, you know, 10 minutes out before they go and do their training session. Then they can see that their data is better because they took a little break before they went out and did it instead of smashing it or directly after it before they rush home, you know? And suddenly that's the bit. You can go, you can get more power output on the bike. You can do it more sustainably for a longer period of time. And that's because you took 20 minutes out before you started the session. So it's kind of like a shorter training session with a little bit of balanced recovery at the start gets better data. And once you get that correlation together, yeah. you know, once you start getting that, you start going, I'm not doing a 60-minute session on that treadmill. I'm doing a 50-minute one with a 10-minute break beforehand because then I'll smash it. I wholeheartedly agree. I say to my athletes all the time, you might, you might have... 15 hours or 20 hours a week to fill with training but it's not necessarily about filling that whole time with the physical aspect of training it's the preparation time and the recovery time that comes into that time uh, I wholeheartedly agree that's, that's a really important sort of aspect of physical performance um, something for the listeners I think you know that we could you know I wanted to ask you out of everything we've spoken about so far and you mentioned light just now which I'm sure we could probably pull into this the next sort of topic you know what what simple routines and little tips can you give give us and the listeners today that we could literally implement from listening to this podcast to start the process of you know bettering and changing our sleep habits oh well, the, the you know your top 10 10 tips nick is always a cracker for everybody isn't it <laughs> um, i think what what you there's a few things just as a preamble into it is um it's basically in our DNA because of this taken for granted is that when we start to struggle with recovery, with sleep, it has to get quite critical. I mean, because which is, I didn't sleep well last night, yada, yada, go on, you know, or I did, or I didn't, I didn't sleep at all. 
For you to go anywhere near a doctor, you know, got to be really bad, really bad. Man. So in general terms, you've got the first thing you want to do is it's in our DNA to go and get a isolated solution. Take a sleeping tablet, take a supplement, grab a new mattress, grab a new pillow. It, it, it's something in isolation that you think you can put into your world and it'll help you sleep better, right? Because even your wife can't tell you how she does it, right? So you sort of think like that. But the journey is, is take on board that you should have learned a lot of this from your parents. You should have learned a lot of this through your educational process. And that is, it's these little seven steps, right? It's the R90 technique with seven key sleep recovery indicators. And that's the buildup of the knowledge and the experience and the gains. And that means the first three, you've got seven. You've got circadian rhythms, chronotype, sleeping cycles, uh, pre and post, uh, a balance between activity and recovery, environment and products. Those are the seven. And where you start is with the first three, not the bottom ones. Stick some nice colours in your bedroom, that will sort it out. Stick some nice mattress or whatever, it might, that might sort it out. None of those things. I coach people to sleep anywhere, anytime, on anything, in any place. That's what we do, right? So, the number one, tap circadian rhythms in your browser. You don't have to become, get a degree in it, but you just get familiar Spend a little time becoming familiar that you are a brain with bodily functions. You just happen to have a name called Nick or Ali, whatever it might be, and you are aligned with that rolling process. So there's nothing about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's a rolling 24-hour process that you want to have that mind. Stop thinking, are you going to sleep okay on Wednesday? I got asked the question, as an elite sports sleep coach, Nick, you must sleep brilliantly every night. I said, I stopped thinking like that 15 years ago. What I'm doing is, I'm doing things every day that helps my brain and me. When we do present ourselves to go to sleep, we optimize that recovery, whether it's four cycles in six hours or 7.5 hours, whether it's a 30-minute cycle here or a little CRP there, whatever, bit, or whatever the world throws at us, we just go, ah, we just keep rolling with it. 35 cycles a week. Yeah, 28 back-to-back 90-minute -back cycles and, and seven little shorter ones. So we start thinking differently. So tap circadian rhythms in and say to yourself now, the more you help the brain, the more you're going to get better and your performance will go through the roof. Could be a game changer for you. The second one is identify your chronotype. Because we touched on a minute ago, if you're a morning, this is a genetic twist. We don't make this up. You can override it, camouflage it, do what you like. But it's there, right? And so if you're an am -er, be conscious of what's going on in your day because there's lots of outside influences, including mates and friends and families and colleagues. So once you identify your own credit side, you can spot others in seconds. So now you know that you're going to have to do certain things that are counterproductive to that credit side. So you can do little things before and after to protect yourself from the impact. If you're a nighttime chronotype, you've got a tough job because you live in an AM as well, right? So your relationship with the 24 hours also has to have something that you can adapt and keep you resilient. 
because you like to be still awake at 12, 1 o'clock in the night, being creative, but trying to get you out of bed in the morning is really, you know, difficult. So you miss out on post-sleep routines. So every PM or I know, I'll get them a poppy, get them up earlier. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so that's, and then sleeping cycles, right? We touched on it. Consistent wait time, chronotype wait time, chop your day up into 90 minute cycles. You create lots of nice little timings. It's completely subconscious. Nobody has to have a, a, a thing going off every 90 minutes, but just you get this really nice process. And then you can actually, never mind any tracker, you can go, well, if I do a, you know, my consistent wait time is 6, 6.30 because I'm AM early. So if you go back, it creates timings. You know, back to 5, back to 3.30, back to 2 a.m., back to 12.30, back to 11. Well, I don't want to go to bed at 10 or 11 o'clock at night because I live in a 24-hour world, right? At an a.m., we like to go to bed early. So I sleep between 12.30, not 11 into 6.30, which is five 90-minute cycles, 12.30 into 6.30, which is four cycles in six hours. I want to go all the way through that without disturbances and smash it. First 90 minutes of the day, but I have a 30-minute cycle uh, late afternoon, which allows me to take the pressure off my phase three period. Right? So those are it. When you get those things together and you start to make a little bit of progress, circadian rhythms, chronotype, sleeping cycles is a more natural way. You're not going to try and sleep less. You're not going to get less recovery. You're just going to gather it in the way that works for you within the defined clinical research approach. You do need around eight hours in any 24, 30% as a human being in some sort of recovery state, like say, that's where the eight comes from. But we never used to get it all in one place. So those three things there, just tap it in your browser, identify your chronotype, it's absolutely simple to do it. Uh, we all know what it is really, and start to think, you know, get a little piece of paper out, you know, do a nice vertical line, do a horizontal line, there's four phases, and put six o'clock on that side, 6 p.m. the other side, 12 o'clock at night, and you've got a nice little dial, and start thinking about what's your most natural... As soon as you start doing that, you then start thinking about pre- and post-sleep routines. It starts to change your attitude your mindset to what this is about. You're starting another journey in the morning, another set of cycles, rolling into the next set. 35, we want to get rid of that, all that's going to Once you get to that place, pre and post starts to come together. Your balance between activity and recovery starts to reveal itself, like we just pointed on. You know, suddenly you start going, whoa, five minutes there, smashed it in the afternoon. You know what I mean? And then you can look at your environment and think, well, just imagine taking everything out of your bedroom, everything, and only putting back in what you would classify as being a benefit to you to go through those hours in a sleep recovery state. Right? It only, that room only becomes a bedroom when you put a bed in it. Yeah? So if you put a bed up the side of a mountain, that's a bedroom. If you're hanging off the side of a cliff. <laughs> so you start to get all these little things, and then you start thinking, wow. So the, the journey is those seven bits. It, it is finding your little gains along that route, but the first three, the first three will determine how you put your own approach together. Once you've done it, Alan, it's like you keep going to see your coach or you keep going to see your physio or whatever it might be, your counsellor or psychologist. You keep going to see them and paying them money every month. 
Once you get these basic principles in place and you know it's a brain bodily functions and the sun, nothing's going to change. You can deal with anything that's coming your way. That's, um, yeah, I mean, one of the changes that we made in our household was no screens upstairs, which made a hell of a difference in just not having that distraction, which yeah. was a big step in the right direction. But I think we need to look at it a little bit more um, holistically in terms of getting the cycles and understanding that and, and um, really making a few changes to that to see if we can really change our sleep behaviours. Yeah. Um, so we're going to start wrapping up now. I have a question from one of the, the listeners. Happy Hannah, 2017. She wanted to ask you, is one hour of sleep before midnight really worth two after? What's your take on that? Um, the answer is sort of basically no. Right? But the principle is, is when you look at, uh, if she taps in circadian rhythms, she probably has some knowledge because she's asking that question. Right? So if you're more synchronized that process, in those four phases, then what happens is as the sun's disappeared and left you in diminished light without switching all the lights on, it leaves you in diminished light, the melatonin builds and you go into a sleep state. Now that would normally be around that sort of 10 p.m. area, right? Before midnight. So the sun's gone away, it's on its roots and you've now catching it up because you go into a sleep state. So principally what happens is the deeper sleep stages will reveal themselves between about 10 p.m. and 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Right? That's when you can go into those states, right? not when the sun's already on its way back, 2 o'clock onwards, because right? the light is already shifting whether you're curled up in your bedroom with your duvet and your eye masks. Right? It's still shifting. So what she's referring to is, you know, those couple of hours before midnight, are valuable because that's when you can go into a deep sleep. The two hours after are valuable because that, but you have to remind yourself this is 20%, right? Most of it is dominated by the other lighter sleep stages. So you can grab that 20% either between 12 and two, between one and two. The PMers tend to get their deep sleep because they get, they don't go to sleep, they crash because they're still trying to be active and they were up early, right? So they crash and the brain will just dump them into deep sleep, you know, in that area, you know, one o'clock, two o'clock is still, you know. You, a lot of people try to go to sleep before 10 to, to try and reveal that deep sleep like she's referring to. But if you've not got a plan from the morning, it ain't gonna happen. You know, if you've not come around to that point, you know, and, and your brain's not going to just go straight into deep sleep just because it happens to be 10 o'clock or the hour before midnight. So it's a nice place to focus, but you don't want to focus on, if I don't go to sleep before 12, it's not a good approach. You know, mine is 12.30 into 6.30, post-routines, lots of CRPs, little 30-minute cycle there. So what happens is I fall into sleep easily, brain takes over, has a bit of fun, second cycle, deep sleep, bang, we're done, wake up, right? So it, it's a little bit like that. It's always going to be a long answer to the question from me, Ali, but that's the way it is. It, it, we've got a lot of learning to do. We've definitely, as a new generation, got to define this sleep approach, you know, way again, because there's more to do, there's more, make it even better. Um, but that's principally what it is. Okay. Well, I think there's... I mean, there's so much to digest. It's such a big topic. And I think it is more and more becoming at the forefront of, of well-being and performance. You know, the, the, the quality of your sleep habits and your rest and recovery. So I think 
there's there's so much from this episode that I think we can all take from and start to you know implement into our routines and rhythms. And I just yeah, I just want to take the opportunity to thank you very much for coming on and for sharing your like wealth of knowledge with us about about sleep. It seems like such an easy thing, but actually there's a lot to it that that we can really start to kind of engage with and think about without it becoming too stressful. Um, so where can people find out a little bit more about you and potentially come come for some help? Um. Well, it's uh, sportsleepcoach.com, uh, sport, no S, sleepcoach.com, or just tap nip little holes in your browser and one of them will come up. We've got uh, lots of blogs, uh, podcasts with, with good people. I'm a bit picky who I do things with. I'm getting bored of it. There's lots of good content, uh, social media platforms. Uh, you know, we're always generally giving stuff away. There's an audible course on the site, nice little cheap introduction to, to getting your journey going. Obviously, my book called Sleep is a very easy read. Um, it, it's certainly not going to take you on a journey of, I've got to change this, and I've got to change that, and I've got to change that. Um, but we've also got, you know, two simple coaching sessions. And that, that's, it's really just like most. It's, um, it's just a, a little one-off personal profile, submit it. I look at it, benchmark it against those seven KSRIs. We jump on a little one-to-one virtual call uh, and we just define your approach. And once that's done, it's done for the rest of your life. Right? There are there's other services where you know I'm working with somebody like, over a longer period of time or an organization, but principally I that's the way to go. I wouldn't, you know, stop trying to think. Uh, what your perception of sleep try and think human recovery performance try to think there's more there for you than you've got Uh, get into a point of not worrying about it so I think you know whatever you do is invest something your time to investigate a few things read a few things get yourself into that place and because it's it's never been a better place to go so sportsleepcoach.com and everything we do applies to every human being who sleeps. Brilliant. Well, Nick, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. That's been a really uh, enlightening episode of the Evolve Pod. There's lots that I'm going to take away. But yeah, thanks very much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And um, for all the listeners, yeah, thanks for listening. If you have uh, enjoyed the episode, please like it, share it amongst your friends and family. And uh, I'll be bringing you some more content next week. Thanks, everybody. Take care.